Excelsior, Season 4, Episode 6. Excelsior, mid-1988 to December 31, 1989. Episode 6. Please meet Zora Neale Hurston, the woman and her work. Sometimes, when we can hear so much about a person yet not have any real sense of who that person is. In the limited time that we have together, dear listener, I'd like to have you meet Zora Neale Hurston and to hear her voice through excerpts from three of her works. When she died on January 28, 1960, of hypertensive heart disease, Zora Neale Hurston was living in the St. Lucie County Welfare Home in Fort Pierce, Florida, the government-supported facility for poor black people. Yet her Wikipedia entry lists her occupation as having been folklorist, anthropologist, ethnographer, novelist, short story writer, and filmmaker. Certainly one does not have to be a rocket scientist to recognize the disconnect between the circumstances of her death and what had been the life she lived. In this episode, I want to speak with you about the Zora Neale Hurston I grew up knowing about and about whom I'm continually learning. When I was growing up, my mother's mother, Addie Mae Grambling Johnson, used to point to Zora Neale Hurston as a role model for me. Zora, and here, dear listener, I'm going to now adopt the practice so many others have, and that is to refer to her only by her first name. Zora was a part of my family lore. I knew she had included a reference to my mother and her sisters as, quote, the pretty Johnson girls, unquote, in her Eatonville-based folklore collection of mules and men. I also knew that she had served as Fanny Hurst's secretary. Now, as an aside... I do not ever recall my grandmother actually telling me anything about who Fanny Hurst was. The important point for her was making me understand a little Negro girl living in a very small black town whose roads were unpaved. Her point was that I did not have to think of my life as being governed by where I lived or where I was from. After all, look at what Zora Neale Hurston had achieved. I also knew that who your family was in Eatonville probably determined what you thought of Zora because in some of her writings, she called out families. She spoke about them in very clear terms about wife beatings and other negative activities that families might not want to have people know about, at least not have them published. I also understood that Zora was different in the way that she did things, in the way that she thought about things. For example, she had a place where she liked to write. It was called Tuxedo Junction, and it was located across the lake from our family property. And though as a little girl, I did not understand the significance of many of the stories my grandmother would tell me about Zora, now I do. For instance, her plan to have my Uncle Gus, who is a very strong swimmer, how she thought that she could get him on the U.S. swim team for the 1936 Olympics. 
You know, the one where Chancellor Adolf Hitler of Germany intended to demonstrate to the world the superiority of the Aryan race? The same Olympic Games where Jesse Owens, the Negro track and field superstar, blew Hitler's dream to smithereens? Yeah, that Olympics. This was Zora's plan. She was going to have my Uncle Gus admitted to Rollins College on a swimming scholarship. Please bear in mind now that we're talking about the 1930s in the segregated Jim Crow South. How could she have possibly contemplated such a thing? She could, because she was Zora. Let me pause for a moment and provide some brief detail on her biography, just so you'll know the particulars. She was born in 1891 in Notasolga, Macon County, Alabama, to Lucy Potts and John Hurston. According to her Wikipedia entry, the year was 1894 that the Hurstons moved to Eatonville. Zora was, as a child, different. Today, we would call her precocious. By all reports, her relationship with her father was difficult. Her mother died in 1904 when Zora was 13. Her father remarried rather quickly in 1905, at the time considered scandalous, to a woman who personifies the description, quote, stepmother from hell, unquote. As the record reflects, she scattered the Hurston children near and far almost immediately. Zora was dispatched to a Baptist boarding school in Jacksonville, and after a time, Reverend John Hurston stopped paying her tuition, and the school dismissed her. Zora, though, was persistent in her pursuit of a formal education. She was 27 years old before she graduated in 1918 from the high school division of Morgan College in Baltimore. One of the well-respected historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, the school today is known as Morgan State University. In 1920, she earned an associate degree from Howard University, another HBCU located in Washington, D.C., while at Howard, not Harvard, while now at Howard, she studied Spanish, English, Greek, and public speaking. In 1928, she earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in anthropology from Barnard College, located in New York City. She had been able to enroll there in 1925 as she had received a scholarship from Barnard trustee Annie Nathan Meyer. When Zora enrolled, she became the only known Negro student at Barnard, and when she graduated, she enjoyed the distinction of being the first. Let me pause here again to say a little bit more about the education Zora received. I need to begin by saying that only the most privileged people whether they be black or white, went to college in the late 19th century and 20th century America. In the country, the economy was still highly agrarian, as in working on the farm, and where there was industry, whether it be in the mines or in the factories, the labor force did not require a college degree. Some skills, yes, but not a college degree. So Zora is privileged to have studied at Morgan, an HBCU, at Howard, an HBCU, at Barnard, and while there, 
At Barnard, she also studied at Columbia University under Dr. Franz Boas, known as, quote, the father of American anthropology. And later, she continued studying under him as a graduate student. Now a bit more about Barnard College. In 1926, according to the Vassar Encyclopedia, enhanced by Google, in 1926, Barnard becomes a member of the elite Seven Sisters. Originally, these four women's colleges, Vassar, Wellesley, Smith, and Mount Holyoke, but in 1926, Barnard was added to this group, along with Benmore and Radcliffe. The Seven Sisters were formed, quote, to combat the crisis which women's colleges were facing, namely raising endowment money to sustain a level of quality education for the early 20th century young women. And now a little bit more about Columbia. As a member of the Ivy League, and here, for football fans in my audience, I am not referring to an athletic program. Per our Wikipedia friends again, the Ivy League is referring to a group of eight elite colleges known for academic excellence, selectivity and admissions, and social elitism. Brown University, Columbia University, Cornell University, Dartmouth College, Harvard University, University of Pennsylvania, Princeton University, and Yale University. The bottom line Zora was a product of some of the best education in America that money could buy. And how did she gain this access? Through her brains. The woman was smart. Coupled with her intelligence and with her Eatonville roots, dear listener, you have a powerful package. And yet, I'd like to add one more aspect to your meeting Zora Neale Hurston, and that is her work ethic. In her 1942 autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road, she says in her concluding chapter, looking things over, I don't know any more about the future than you do. I do hope that it will be full of work, because I have come to know by experience that work is the nearest thing to happiness that I can find. No matter what else I have among the things that humans want, I go to pieces in short while I'm not going to work. What all my work shall be, I don't know that either, every hour being a stranger to you until you live it. I want a busy life, a just mind, and a timely death. So in today's parlance, the woman was a workaholic. Listen to this timeline. 1934, Jonas Gord Vine. 1935, Mules and Men. 1937, Their Eyes Were Watching God. 1938, Tell My Horse. 1939, Moses, Man of the Mountain. 1942, Dust Tracks on a Road. 1948, Seraph on a Swanee. And these are just her books. Remember her brief bio says she was a folklorist, an anthropologist, an ethnographer, a novelist, short story writer, filmmaker. And I can also add, she produced theater pieces. Are you ready now to hear her voice? From her literary classic, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Chapter one, pages one and one and a half. Ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, 
never landing until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is a life of men. Now women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. So the beginning of this was a woman, and she had come back from burying the dead. Not the dead of sick and ailing with friends at the pillow and the feet. She had come back from the sodden and the bloated, the sudden dead, their eyes flung wide open in judgment. The people all saw her come because it was sundown. The sun was gone, but he had left his footprints in the sky. It was a time for sitting on porches beside the road. It was a time to hear things and talk. These sitters had been tongueless, earless, eyeless conveniences all day long. Mules and other brutes had occupied their skins. But now the son and the boss man were gone, so the skins felt powerful and human. They became lords of sounds and lesser things. They passed nations through their mouths. They sat in judgment. Seeing the woman as she was made them remember the envy they had stored up from other times, so they chewed up the back parts of their minds and swallowed with relish. They made burning statements with questions and killing tools out of laughs. It was mass cruelty, a mood come alive. Words walking without masters, walking all together like harmony in a song. What she doing coming back here in them overalls? Can't she find no dress to put on? Where's that blue satin dress she left here in? Where all that money her husband took and died and left her? What that old 40-year-old woman doing with her hair swinging down her back like some young gal? Where she left that young lad of a boy she went off with? Thought she was going to marry. Well, he left her. What he done with all her money? Betcha he off with some gal so young she ain't got no hairs. Why she don't stay in her class? And now, from her folklore collection, Mules and Men, one of the two folklore collections where she explains why sometimes rough waters are on the lake. The wind is a woman, and the water is a woman, too. They used to go talk a whole leap together. Ms. Wynn used to go sit down by the ocean and talk and patch and crochet. They was just like all lady people. They loved to talk about their children and brag on them. Mrs. Water used to say, look at my children. I got the biggest and the littlest in the world, all kinds of children, every color in the world and every shape. The wind lady bragged louder than the water woman. Oh, but I got more different childrens than anybody in the world. They flies, they walks, they swims, they sings, they talks, they cries. They got all the colors from the sun. Lord, my children show is a pleasure. Tain't nobody got no babies like mine. Mrs. Water got tired of hearing about Miss Wynn's children, so she got so she hated them. One day, a whole parcel of her children come to Mrs. Wynn and said, Mama, we's thirsty. Can we go get a cool drink of water? She says, yeah, children, run on over to Mrs. Water and hurry right back soon. When them children went to quench their thirst, Mrs. Water grabbed them up and drowned them. When her children didn't come home, the wind woman got worried, so she went on down to the water and asked for her babies. Good evening, Miss Water. 
You see my chillin' today? The water woman told her, no. Mrs. Wynn knew her chillin' had come down to Mrs. Water's house, so she passed over the ocean calling her chillin', and every time she called, the white feathers would come up on top of the water. And that's how come we got white caps on waves. It's the feathers coming up when the wind water calls her lost babies. When you see a storm on the water, it's the wind and the water fighting over them chillin'. And lastly, from her autobiography, Again Dust Tracks on the Road, and per Henry Louis Gates, Jr., the distinguished scholar and series editor of the Harper Perennial Edition, as he said, when Dust Tracks on the Road was first published in 1942, at the crest of her popularity as a writer, this is Zora Neale Hurston's imaginative and exuberant account of her rise from childhood poverty in the rural South to a prominent place among the leading artists and intellectuals of the Harlem Renaissance. From the concluding chapter, Looking Things Over. Well, this is the way things stand up to now. I can look back and see sharp shadows, highlights, and smudges in-betweens. I have been in Sorrow's kitchen and licked out all the pots. Then I have stood on the peaky mountain wrapped in rainbows with a harp and a sword in my hand. What I had to swallow in the kitchen has not made me less glad to have lived, nor made me want to low-rate the human race, nor any whole sections of it. I take no refuge from myself in bitterness. To me, bitterness is the underarm odor of wishful weakness. It is the graceless acknowledgement of defeat. I have no urge to make any concessions like that to the world as yet. I might be like that some day, but I doubt it. I am in the struggle with the sword in my hands, and I don't intend to run until you run me. So why give off the smell of something dead under the house while I am still in there, tussling with my sword in my hand? Now thus far, in our time together, I have never asked you to do anything outside of an episode, nor am I now. But I do want to encourage you, if you are of a mind, to extend this introduction to Zora Neale by reading and or listening to some of her work. If you plan to read, please don't be intimidated by the dialect with all those apostrophes indicating letters have been left out of words. The best way to understand exactly what is written on the page is to say the words out loud, because once you do, you will understand immediately. I promise. It has been my pleasure to introduce you all to Zora Neale Hurston. Perhaps she will become, if not a close friend, an acquaintance you will enjoy spending some time with on occasion. End of episode six. You've been listening to An Eatonville Saga. Executive producer, the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, Inc. Podcast concept and storyteller, N.Y. Nathiri, Eatonville native and executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, Inc., P.E.C. Produced and directed by Ken Moore. 2020 copyright by the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, Inc. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. If you would like to support our podcast by giving... 
you can give to PEC at www.give2pec.org. That's www.give, the number two, PEC.org.